Hello, podheads. This is Dave. Just a quick message to let you know that the Dave's Picks conversation with Zach focused primarily on the first two discs, the 19th, November 20th, 1971 show from the Pauley Pavilion at UCLA. The third disc in the Dave's Picks 1970, selected songs from the 1970 show, will be talked about next week. Uh, just me in a shorter episode, but Zach and I decided to focus on the entirety of the 1971 show. So if you have strong thoughts or opinions on the 1970 show, the third disc, stay tuned for that next week. For now, please enjoy the conversation with Zach Cropper about the 1971 show. We are here with Dr. Zach Cropper from Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. We're talking about Dave's Picks Volume 48, in part, from November 20th, 1971 at the Pauley Pavilion at UCLA. Have you ever been to UCLA or just LA in general, out west? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, thanks for having me back, by the way. Always a pleasure. I guess it was five and a half years ago, uh, March break 2018. We had a few days in LA and then a week in Carlsbad and a few day trips to San Diego, a beautiful part of the country. I've always wanted to move there, actually. And we did go to UCLA. We walked past Pauley Pavilion on the way to the gift shop. Nice. And there's a, a little statue of a brune outside the arena. Very cool. Very cool. Well, then you are the resident expert because I don't, <laughs> I've never been to the state of California, which is something that needs to change. Um, especially as someone who likes to pretend that they cover the Grateful Dead. There were days, there were days, there were days Usually what we do at the beginning of the show is we talk about the days between. The last time you were with us was back, I think it was either in June or July when the 73 box set came out so that's a lot of days between so instead what's just been a highlight of 2023 as we move into the the close of the year well definitely relevant to this show i would say seeing dead and company this summer which was my first chance to see any version of the dead uh i had a great trip to chicago with my friend and saw both nights at wrigley and then a great trip to san francisco and saw the last night there and met Alex from the pod here uh, in the flesh. And uh, yeah, so it was really cool to finally experience it in person after um, trying to experience it vicariously as well as possible for yeah. a few years now. And you picked, I mean, some of the best cities because it just always seemed like they always dazzled at Wrigley. Like they always had good shows in Chicago. And, you know, last year or this last year was no, no exception. Yeah, and I think that's something we should maybe come back to when we get into talking about the show, how their music seems to fluctuate from city to city more than most artists and, and why that might be the case. 
and how LA is kind of an underrated city for them. Absolutely. I will, when we talk about the venue, I will give you the signal and, and let's do it. What about your days between? Oh, my or, days between or your, uh, your highlight of the year. Good question. Good question. My highlight of the year. I mean, it's been sort of like the dead in 71. It's been a huge transition year for me in 2023, Uh new job, new city. And like, you know, trying to f- refigure things out in a new career. Um, but a big highlight, dude, our, our dead and co coverage of the entire tour was like the most fun grind I think I've ever done. Like it, okay. it, we had a schedule, we were, you know, up late to watch the shows. And then I, I mean, there were some nights where I was recording at like after midnight Eastern time. There were some days where I was waking up at 6 a.m. to record and get an episode out like early so that when people were, especially if there was like a show on back-to-back days. So it was a grind, but like also it truly was an example of like, if you love what you're doing, it's okay. Like it was listening to Dead & Company play amazing shows. So that whole venture that we did with the DNC 23 stuff was like some of them. It's a weird way to say it, but it's some of the most fun stress I've ever had. Um, so that would be my my fun answer. Okay. Thank you okay, for the so question. You- <laughs> um, but now let's get on with the show. Nineteen seventy-one. The last time you joined us was talking about how seventy-three was one of the biggest, like, transition influential years for the band, with like Pigpen's death and the jazz forward style and stuff. It's probably second place to nineteen seventy-one as far as like how big of a transition, both personnel-wise and style-wise, that they're going through. They're leaving their Primal Dead era. They're losing a member when Mickey left um, in the spring. They get a new member in when Keith joins in the fall and they're introducing more of the like Americana Europe 72 songs in the fall 71 tour and kind of shifting their sound from primal dead to the grateful dead, um, the seventies style music. So just like a, a monster transition year for the band that comes with so many new songs too. This is just, this is not an exclusive list. This is just like kind of running through the ones that I saw. Bertha, Loser, Warfrat, Greatest Story, Tennessee Jed, Playin', Birdsong, Deal, Ramble on Rose. There's just some of like the songs that debuted in 71. Sugary, Jack Straw, Brown Eyed Women. Yeah, just yeah. all of you, like the Europe 72 favorites are debuting the year before in 71 and the band is figuring them out and molding them into to great sound and speaking of losing people they're still recovering from losing bear to right to your prison sentence in like early fall 70 which you know he's next to robert hunter as close to a pseudo member as you could get at that point yeah that's a great point absolutely they lost a venue in 1971 Bill Graham closed the Fillmore East earlier that year. Another major venue would open in 71, although I don't think the dead ever played at Walt Disney World, which opened its doors on October 1st, 1971. 
Huh. All right. What else is going on in the in the world in 1971? The top grossing movie of the year is Fiddler on the Roof, the adaptation of the musical. The top movie during the week of November 20th, 1971, was the movie that would go on to win Best Picture that year, The French Connection. Hmm. I've never seen it, but... Me neither. Yeah. I mean, Best Picture, probably can't go wrong there. On television, a couple notable debuts in 1971, The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour, and the first full season of Columbo. Famous Detective aired in 1971. Shows that wrapped up in 1971. Not a lot of famous shows, but the most famous one that I found was the Ed Sullivan show, which is notable because the CBS late show is broadcast out of the Ed Sullivan theater. So an influential, like early television figure, Ed Sullivan. What are we here for? We're here for music. Top album of the year in 1971 was Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical soundtrack. Have you ever like heard or listened to that? Actually, album? no. Yeah, I haven't either. Um, but the reviews are glowing, so it made me like, oh. add a little note to to check that out someday. Um, the top album during the week of November 20th, Santana 3 by Santana. Um, so big album and a big deal because that was the last album that like the the og santana lineup um created until something like it was like 2016 or 2018 uh-huh. like very recently the original santana lineup got back together to make an album but santana 3 was the last one of the like the founding core right for a while. have you ever seen him i've never seen him live now have you yeah twice oh, tell us about it uh, it's really good retained his chops remarkably well compared to a lot of other uh you know virtuosos of his age nice yeah like the, I, the uh when did like how old were you when you saw him was it very uh, recent or 2019 he opened for the doobie brothers and then oh that's very cool last year earth wind and fire opened for him those are monster shows yeah, yeah they're good <laughs> wow well, okay, it's a lot past the statute of limitations. I can tell this anecdote. So the, I actually don't remember the first time because I uh, I had gotten up at like five in the morning that day to help my dad unload a truck at work. And then at the way the cookie crumbled, I ran out of time to have a nap. So I still took the same amount of edibles that I had intended to. And I remember the Doobie Brothers opening set and I remember them saying, please welcome Santana. And the next thing I knew, the house lights were on and everybody's leaving. And I looked down and I'm covered in popcorn. I was like, guys, what happened? And they said, oh, yeah, like you fell asleep. And then the guys behind us were like, huh, it's just another Saturday night for this guy and started throwing popcorn on you. And I was like, you didn't help me. <laughs> They're like, no, no. <laughs> uh, too into the music, man. Yeah. Oh man, that's funny. I have a buddy who uh took way too much edibles before a Radiohead show at Madison Square Garden and he remembers the first song and he remembers exiting MSG and that's it. <laughs> it's it's the worst feeling to like it, it's one thing to waste like a movie or something but like a concert. <laughs> yeah, like oh, dang. Top song of the year in 1971, Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, absolute 
powerhouse classic. Other interesting ones that I saw on the top charts, Country Roads Take Me Home by John Denver at number eight. And then number 11 was Janis Joplin's cover of Me and Bobby McGee, which very relevant to this show. Um, It'd be a song the dead would embrace. But it's also interesting because it was just the second song ever to be posthumously released and still end up a weekly number one hit. The other number one posthumous release song was Sitting on the Dock in the Bay by Otis Redding. So I thought that was cool that like those at the time were the two songs in that category, just absolute powerhouses. They both sort of have a bit of that goodbye flair to make it kind of spooky as a send off song. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. I didn't make that connection, but that's a really good point. Top song on the day of the show, the theme from the movie shaft by Isaac Hayes. Have Hmm. you ever endeavored to listen to the theme from shaft? No, but I am aware of it because I believe uh, Jimmy Page based his uh, his solo for something off of it or would toss it in. Oh, Led Zeppelin theme from Shaft instrumental cover is a thing that they played live a couple times. That's probably what you're thinking of. Yeah. When when they covered the theme from Shaft. Um, If you have so you have, you know unknowingly in the back of your subconscious you have heard it um if you hadn't heard it i was going to say it starts out as the typical police drama boogie but then it like shifts into this powerful anthem at like the halfway point of the song um so go check out the theme from shaft if you if you are so inclined or check out the led zeppelin cover because that's cool too birthdays on november 20th daddy b president joe biden born on november 20th Hmm. uh Rapper Future, comedian Joel McHale, and musician Joe Walsh, also born on November 20th. Sad Deaths on November 20th, Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace. And for you, Zach, I tried to find a famous Canadian who passed on November 20th, and I found Ken Schenkel, Canadian hockey right-wing player and coach, who passed away in 2020. It, it was getting near the end of the list and I control yeah. left Canada and, and that's who I thought, <laughs> um, but wanted to have someone from, from your country in your honor. Appreciate it. 1971, the year for the grateful dead, the band played 82 shows in 1971, which is no small number. Sounds like a lot of shows, but they were coming off of 140 shows in 1970. So this is like a, this is a step back for the band and yet they're still playing you know, what is that? Almost 25% of the days, just a little under a quarter of the days of the year. 1971 is one of those rare years where California is not their most played in state. Would you like to guess what state is most played in 71? Uh, Gotta be New York. Correct. Nice job. New York gets the honor. 22 shows in New York in 71 compared to California's 17. Hmm. Official releases... 1971 has a ton of official release coverage. I counted I counted a lot, but what I thought was interesting is that there are two Dick's Picks, Dick's Picks Volume 2 and Dick's Picks Volume 35, which is weirdly like the second and then the second to last release. I thought that that was a kind of a nice little bow on, on official release coverage from 71. But uh, interestingly, oh, not a lot of 
complete shows like Dave's picks starting to, but like Dick's picks, it's not that's, the whole show. That's true. You got the ladies and gentlemen comp that scrambles it all up, which I think gets at something I've noticed that 71 is a great year for cherry picking, but kind of short on all time. Great individual shows. Part of the problem, not problem, part of just what I noticed with, I did the fall 71, like listen on the dates tour to like prepare for the Dave's picks. Like one, as soon as that was announced, I just like was going through the fall 71 tour and the repetitiveness of the set list from night into night out is one it's understandable because you have a new band member keith is in there and they want to get him going like as best as they can so i totally get it two it makes listening like on back to back to back to back days you know it's just like there's not as much variety as there was a little later in their playing career i understand your point in that and like the set ones are long which is great if you just need to pop it on in the background and like you know listen and vibe along to get through your day but if you're listening like with a little more critical ear it can get it can get repetitive real quick um if you're and that's just fall 71 that's not the entire year um so to your point i i do think i understand what you're saying the venue paulie pavilion at ucla the pavilion opened in 1965 for the UCLA Bruins basketball teams, held about 12,800 people um, for most of its run, including at the time of the show. The pavilion was renovated in 2013 and can now fit about 1,000 more people. And you said you had something on the venue. Oh, well, first of all, when I, I said I've been to the campus and I like you know, I'm into college football as you are. And so I like checking in on campuses when I'm traveling in the States. And what's unusual about UCLA is, is the neighborhood that it's plopped in. Like it's basically in like LeBron hmm. and all these movie stars backyard. Like I think the average, oh. how, the average house price in the neighborhood where UCLA is, is like $10 million. So if you go across the street from the school. Oh. So like, yeah, it's a very unusual school like just location wise because of that very pretty campus and up in the hills but anyway i i noticed listening to all sorts of bands like zeppelin the the vibe of the show fluctuates based on the city and there's you can sort of like tell a seattle show from a new york show from an la show so like in the zeppelin world seattle seemed to get really creative performances from jones and bonham New York would be a bit more like focused, trying to impress the critics and LA would be like showboating for the groupies. Bonham always seemed to go crazy in Texas. And then apparently, uh, you know, there's a really strong pipeline of like high quality Coke at the time into Texas. And so explains why Bonham was always so crazy there. Um, But with the dead, with their music being more nebulous, I find that that, uh, there's an even stronger correlation there. And especially with a song like dark star, like it really takes on the flavor of, you know, the venue and the part of the country and the time of year and whether it's outside or inside. Yeah. I think there's a few instances in this show of it, you know, sounding like you would expect for LA, like in the other one, there's a jam at some point in the middle. That's like psychedelic country, Latin surf rock. It's like, Oh, okay, that's exactly the mix you would expect from LA. 
Yeah, I don't know if it was on our show or just like in a discussion with us, but you have made the point in the past, like Zeppelin would, you know, kind of change their energy based on the city, whereas the dead would like find these hidden gems in the most random venues like Cornell, English Town, New Jersey, like um, all that stuff. But what what you're talking, we'll talk about it later when we dive into that monster other one, but the the flavor that they put on. I actually think there's two, not just one. Um, I I couldn't agree more with what you're saying and how they they were putting on a show for the the LA students. Um, this was the this was their first ever show and at the, Poly Pavilion. Well, it's cool to compare it to the show there just about two years later on the 17th and 73, which is also a Dave's picks. And that one they open with me and my uncle, and then here comes Sunshine. This one they have it second, but I think it's neat having it so early in the show speaking of the sort of thing with the location affecting things because you, you forget how close or how la isn't that, that far removed from like the wild west and the cowboy sort of vibe uh in terms of like it's not that long ago that it was like that and also just like physically it's not that far removed like rural california as you drive towards arizona and vegas and that that's mm. pretty wild west like yeah that like southern desert is that yeah. where like kind of joshua tree and all that kind of yeah, area exactly. of the country is yeah yeah that's a good point yeah that and i think bob realizes that because we're going to talk about the like dare i say oversaturation of of cowboy bob um and desert songs um coming up well, soon I guess the the Bakersfield sound, as it was referred to, like when they went country, quote unquote, with Working Man's, you know, Bakersfield's, mm, yep. a suburb of LA, and oh, it all it all comes together. Look at that. The last thing that we have to do before we talk about the the music is because that this is the last Dave's picks of the year, we have to rank the artwork from the all the releases this year, um, and I know that you were a huge fan of this for days fix 48 release, but um, I will ask you first as our guest, how would you line up the, the four CD artworks um, in, in whatever, whatever ranking your heart desires? That is a great question. Um, I think this year I was actually thinking about this earlier today. I think this is one of the better years, uh, at least in recent years for the artwork. Um, I thought last year was kind of hit or miss. The I didn't really like the uh, the style of the Baltimore one, and oh man, one the of Baltimore the Baltimore one ones, is still one of my favorites. I love oh, really? that. Yeah, <laughs> I agree that this year the style is so much different. And whereas I feel last year was like hidden tributes within each artwork. Mm-hmm. This year seemed to be very much very like focused on color as a rather than like, you know, objects as a mm-hmm. reference, more color as a reference, if that makes sense. There are probably art students, there the one or two art students who listen to this who are screaming that that's a, <laughs> a dumb way to analyze that. But I, I would agree. And I think they uh, like they look like they match, like if you had them lined up in a square it would look like oh yeah that's four volumes of a box set that that's a great point they they look like a year's set 
to answer your question though, I would just put this one number one, let's say. Um and then I'll do volume forty five, number two, uh because I'm a sucker for trains and uh <laughs> I like the mountains in the background too. Um and then we'll go forty seven in third. Uh that one's pretty cool as well. Forty six in last uh just I'm not crazy about the fortune teller sort of thing, but I do like the tall palm trees though reflecting the you know Hollywood Beverly Hills sort of thing. We have the same list except my one and two are flip flopped. I would put forty five okay. at one. This release forty eight the the blue bear on the skateboard like around you know what looks like to be like a parking lot in L A is just so cool. I, I um, think it's supposed to be like must Venice Beach. Yeah, I, I've never I've never been there. Um, Alex used to live in L A. He lived in L A. for a year, um, so he would. I bet you he'd be able to like point on a map where that that bear is skateboarding. But Probably. <laughs> um, I, I like completely agree. And I think for me, it's just the blue and orange, like complementary cover of volume 45 works like just a tiny bit better than the blue and gold of what, which are UCLA's colors. So like it okay. completely makes sense. I think of all the releases this one just edges out 47 in terms of like what makes sense for the city they were in. Like volume 47 is a very St. Louis release, but this one just like encompasses. I think, I feel like this cover art encompasses everything about being a college student in LA and this is at a college in LA. Yeah. So that was my critique, but I'm, I'm with you just flip flop one and two. All right, you ready to dive in? You want to take a deep breath and dive into the the fourteen song set one we got going on here.
Set one opened with Bertha and right off the bat, like based on the mix that I heard, which uh, I guess we should talk about this now, the United States Postal Service has let Working Man's Pod down once again. And I actually did not get the CDs because of the move and like mail forwarding the timing just like Mm. didn't work out. So I did not listen to the like CD release quality version. Um, I listened to the tapes on the archive. But right away, I was able to notice that this is going to be a good show for Keith. Yeah, um, he's playing really well and nice and high in the mix. But it was funny to me jumping straight from December 73 to this. Um, it really stands out how new to the the mix he is uh, in terms of like you know, the mix of players, not the mix of the sound. Um like he's playing great and it fits, but more so like an added puzzle piece where it's hard to explain, but like by this point, two years later, he's so much more organically integrated, even by by the time you get to Europe five, six months after this. Yeah, he he's new. He's learning. And I think what stood out to me is how well Bob and Phil were playing as they like guide a new rhythm member through the songs. Like, I don't want to say Keith is playing it safe because like you said, he said, he's, he's trying to figure out what he can and can't do with this sound. But Bob and Phil are like holding his hand in the beginning. And then they're like, eh, you'll get it. And we're just, we're going to like show you how to get it with how, how great they're playing. Bertha is a song. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I noticed he's pounding more in the mid range on this Bertha than he would as time went on. It seems like, as you get a bit later in the one drummer era, he would add more like embellishments up high on Bertha. Mm. So it gives this one a bit more of a barroom feel. Bertha debuted this year in 1971. So it's very young. Um, but I know that the dead liked it because they played it 57 times in this debut year. So they were as excited as we are to be busting it out and introducing it to the the fans in UCLA. Out of Bertha, they go into Me and My Uncle, which we talked about with Janis Joplin earlier. It was a solid Me and My Uncle with that saloon piano and Cowboy Bob at the helm, and I don't have much more to add. I liked the the way Billy approached it, Um, really leaning into the bass drum. It was like heavy yet jazzy. This is a good show for Billy in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Out of Me and My Uncle... They go to Sugary, which was, I thought, fine. But I noted that there were weirdly aggressive vocals from Jerry. Like, it's not a sweet, pleasant Sugary, you know? It's like attack mode. Instrumentally, too, it's very harsh. Um, Yeah. It's like, it's almost more like a Jed at this point. Very, like, coily and, like, how they build really high in the chorus and then snap back into the verse yeah i i'm glad that you agreed with that because it's i don't know it's just it doesn't feel out of place it was just kind of like it was so different enough that it it really kind of made me squint my eyes and be like man they are really approaching this song from a different spot that they would i think find their groove with even yeah six months later on europe 72 yeah, I would agree that not bad, just different. Just different. I mean, Bi- yeah. Billy even goes like 
into bottom mode with his like <laughs> successive crashes at one point. Yeah. Uh, that's a good way to put it. Bottom mode. Out of sugary, they go into beat it on down the line. Um, and this is kind of, this was kind of like me and my uncle for me. Like it was tight and upbeat. I didn't, I didn't have much to add, but to the point of like Keith is learning and uh, <laughs> they kind of wanted to keep, keep things pretty consistent for him to figure it out. This is the third time just within the fall 71 tour that the first four songs opened Bertha, me and my uncle sugary beat it on down the line. It's like the third time in, mm. in just like a month that they had wow. opened a show like that. And it's very difficult to find shows where the first four songs are exactly the same. Um, mm-hmm. So this is something that they were, but they were running out the 71 tour, you know, these songs and a lot of times in the same order to it, my theory is to help Keith like integrate fully um, and become a, become a full-time part of the band. Mm-hmm. The, <clears throat> I think that willingness to stick with winning combinations definitely carries through Europe. There's like a few times where they go Bertha, me and my uncle, Mr. Charlie, and then throughout the rest of 72 and even into 73 like promised land sugary is a really common one too so and i don't necessarily think it's a bad thing i I like a lot of deadheads especially those espousing the merits of later years in comparison to the one drummer era will cite that as like a reason for why the later years are better like oh the settlers are too repetitive in europe whatever but i think a certain amount of that structure that they were able to rest into helped the the playing be really consistent and creative but yeah i for me it's for me it's like if i'm choosing to listen to all these songs on consecutive days i start to trend toward god i loved their variety in later years but if you're just Mm -hmm. like peppering in a europe 72 like once a year for example it's like man this is a really tight transition like they did this really well so i mean practice does make perfect right Mm -hmm. so yeah i think I think both can be right. And uh, as long as you enjoy it, who cares? Mm-hmm. From beating on down the line, they go into a slick, tight Tennessee Jed where I thought for the song, everything was working. This was also the first song of the show where I thought that there was actually like a good amount of music to analyze. So what were your thoughts on this, on this Jed? Very fast and springy. Uh, as most of these fall 71 versions are a few of the transitions were like slightly loose, but um, Jed's a song where that's not a deal breaker for me. If it's because of the energy and exuberance, uh, Dusseldorf 72 would be maybe a bit more polished example of that sort of vibe. Um, Yeah. Overall, I thought it was a riot. Where do you know?
My notes are almost identical to yours um, with the main point that it doesn't have quite the same energy as those Europe 72 versions. Like, for example, where they're like, oh, like yelling to mm-hmm. each other on stage at the transitions. But I thought musically this was unimpeachable, like it's studio version quality. And I think that's notable because this is only the 16th Jed ever. So this song debuted a month before the show. So mm-hmm. You know they they haven't been playing this for two months yet, and they've and they've got it. Well, and the way that it, it sort of has them playing ping pong with each other, it, it could very easily sound like a cluttered mess. So to have it so tight early True. on is good. Yeah. True. From Jed, they go into Mexicali Blues. Bob just wanted to be a cowboy tonight, I guess. He brought some some country rock to the city folk. But like you said earlier, it's it's not that far away from from the desert. And uh and that's that could be part of that like LA scene. Nor from Mexico, in the case of Mexico. Well, and great it, point. it sort of reads like a, a weekend in Tijuana. <laughs> um it occurred to me that this is maybe the first original that I don't think they would have been able to pull off, at least not convincingly, without Keith. Oh, why is that? I just think the piano plays more of an integral role as opposed to an ornamental one. From Mexicali, they go into Brown-Eyed Women. And this was the first song that I noticed Phil just absolutely running away with the gold medal and being like, Keith, don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what to do here. Cause he is just dropping bombs left and right and, and having a grand old time. Time's over the 
yeah it, there's a nice bounce to this one for sure yeah and, so, and some funny banter afterwards they i guess they're fixing an issue with billy's monitors because jerry says if the drummer can't hear you man bad news <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and then someone shouts something that i think is about casey jones because then jerry fires back with like that's not the meaning of the song and like tells the guy to listen closely sometime. <laughs> and and then it's like, that says there's some like hidden meanings, like, but we ain't going to tell you the rest. Uh, nice. There, there seemed to be like a medium amount of stage banner from the show. There were more than a couple times where Phil, I don't know if it was like a joke he was making or there was banter that was like cut from the tapes, but there were a couple songs where he was like, and now back to the Grateful Dead, like as Jerry was opening a song, um, which I and I think you share this point with me that their stage banner is just the more that they do it, the more I enjoy it. Well, and I think we were discussing in the Here Comes Sunshine episode back in July, how you noticed quite a drop off in it in 73, even as 72 goes on. But I wanted to report back that it comes back in December 73 on the uh, like Donna's maternity leave tour. Anyway, back to anyway, (laughs) out of brown eyed women, they go into Bob's fourth cowboy song in a row, El Paso. So Bob's songs so far tonight were me and my uncle beat it on down the line, Mexicali blues and El Paso. So I feel like at this point, he's just, he's wearing a cowboy hat and he's just decided this is the vibe for tonight. My take on this El Paso is I think vocally it's the worst of his four cowboy songs, but musically it's the best of the four cowboy songs. It seemed to just have like a little extra oomph from, from Phil and like behind what Jerry was bringing. Bill gives it a really nice swing. And uh, Jerry really nails that closing note, which is one of those like songs within the song that really make or break in El Paso for me. Yeah, like the last five seconds. Like you're yeah, like, about after Felina Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Song within a song. I like that. Um, I will be stealing that in the future. Yeah, I've had it. It's not mine, but. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> Out of El Paso, they go into Big Railroad Blues. And I feel like you've kind of touched on it so far, but I'm going to like really bring it to the forefront. Billy is having an outstanding night on the drums. Like this is some great drumming. And also with this song, this is where Keith, I feel like started to come out of his shell a little bit. Mm-hmm. He started to get get loose and... uh start to explore not just like play what bob and phil were playing yeah yeah i could see that i i think it just suits their 71 sound really well in general Yeah. 
this was also the i feel i feel like you could cut set one into two parts and those first eight songs that we talked about i feel like were one part where they were just like i don't want to say it was a rehearsal but it did kind of feel like they were running through songs to get keith warmed up and then these next six songs in set one are like kind of the start of a a great back half to set one and i feel like it started here with big railroad blues yeah i could see that this is the number 103 big railroad blues on heady version it's one of those ones where the the votes are really indicative of the popularity of the show in general because with a few exceptions it's one where like one version is not a bit more into the next thing stand out yeah but yeah you're right like that it can't no, I can't. It, it just is a song that like didn't lend itself to many different twists like and turns. Beat, it was beat it on down the line. Yeah, like, so it's, it's exactly like the energy is the big variable, right? From big railroad, yeah, big railroad blues. They go into Jack Straw. What were your thoughts on this Jack Straw? Billy really jumped out at me. Uh, he's much more persistent than the way that he would typically attack jackstraw for the rest of the one drummer era it almost sounds as busy as a two drummer jackstraw like right from the jump he's like pounding the 16ths on the hi-hat where it would usually be like at least broken 16ths and he like pulls back and it's more of an atmospheric intro if you think of like a 72 73 jackstraw um and he's got some nice thumping fills on the toms throughout as well uh i thought it was that led to a very propulsive version. I completely agree. Kind of like Jed, this was only the 16th ever Jack Straw. So this, this is a young song that they're still kind of learning and figuring out. Unlike the Jed, I don't think they had it quite figured out like at this time yet. I think they're still finding room to grow here, but it it's young. Well, well Jed, it has like a somewhat unusual groove, but then you mostly like ride that for the duration of it. Jack straw has a lot of like sharp dynamic shifts for such a short song where it drops almost completely out and like slips into a sort of a halftime feel and stuff like that could explain why it took a bit longer to perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's for sure. After Jack straw, they go into Cumberland blues and this is a, a tight five Cumberland. It's it's very short, but there's lots to enjoy, starting with starting and ending with Jerry. But Jerry's just on it this whole song. It kind of seemed to me like they'd been playing in a Cumberland sort of style the whole show up to this point with that runaway train kind of chaotic energy, which mm-hmm. I noted even in Bertha, it's it's cool how 71 still has a fair bit of that primal dead sort of buzz to it um so it's like they've been hinting at a cumberland type of attack the whole show and then they're finally able to fully cut loose here finally deliver and they deliver with a good one it's the number 77 cumberland on heady version um which you know that's relatively high for a show that you know was is kind of a relative unknown for for so long Mm -hmm. and and for a 71 version i would say that's pretty good because it's not a year that people typically think of to like go to for an amazing Cumberland.
from Cumberland, they move into playing in the band and kind of like Cumberland being like a tight five. This is a, a tight seven. And it's not like a, it's not like a shorter plan. That's like a 12 minute version condensed into a nine minute version because they're just playing so quick. This had a relatively slow tempo for a plane in the band. I thought. I, yeah, I found the, the intro was had a darker, heavier feel than usual. Uh, courtesy of Bill and Phil primarily, I think. Yeah. I'm very glad that you brought up Phil because he, like Jesus, buddy, he was just like so loud and so great this entire song. I actually went from like quite low on this plan to being all for it when Jerry began to jam off that like playing pre chorus riff around, I think it was like the three and a half, four minute mark. The jam. So they did like the the verse and the chorus a couple of times and then they went into like the jam part and they were pretty repetitive on the rhythm for about 30 seconds. And I kind of lost interest a little bit. I was like, oh, okay, they're, they're still trying to figure it out. And then Jerry was like, no, watch this and totally took it to a great place. And like, right as he did that, you know, Bob and Phil went into like this great spot too. I feel like the, my problem with the song initially was that Keith almost felt like he was at piano practice. It was like very stiff, loud, one note things that he was doing. And Bob and Phil kind of let him do that. And then they were like, okay, we're going to take the the rhythm section torch from you at this point and, and show you where this, this song can go. Uh, I went from pretty low to, to pretty high on this play and kind of like that. Yeah. One well, and Jerry doing that, that's a great example of one of those, you know, showboating, sparkly LA type moments. Ah, yes. And in terms of Keith, it not that ten four is particularly weird to play, but it is kind of uncommon. So that could be part of it that he you know hadn't really done much improvising in ten four up to this point. Whereas Bob and Phil had a few extra months practice because debuted in February seventy one. Feb 18th, 71. Yep. Because it, it's like, you know, it's one thing to learn a groove in a unusual time signature, but then the next step is like, okay, now how do I improvise and not lose track of where I am? But as I say, 10-4 is not that goofy, so that's not necessarily <laughs> the reason. This is from user Bungo Bingy on Heady Version. A humble six minutes, but it's a jammy precursor of what's to come. And I really liked that a humble six minutes. I thought that that was very spot on. Yeah, it's like we know we don't have enough good ideas with this yet. Right, exactly. Stretch it longer, but we will. From plan, they go into Casey Jones. We are still in set one on song 13. In this Casey Jones, it had that. Keith had that good saloon sound and it has that rocking like blow the speakers out ending that the song deserves um, which I think could have made for a great end to set one but there's one more <laughs> yeah I, I agree they really nailed the the runaway train feel here um, before that like earlier in the song Phil adds some nice flourishes higher up the neck and then the, I don't know if you caught there's a moment of hesitation toward the end where they almost stop and then decide to go one more round 
and at that mm-hmm. point billy goes like full bottom with the snare crashes in succession for like pretty much the entire cycle through it um i would say one of the most powerful casey jones i've heard uh i think cleveland 72 still takes the cake again because of billy but yeah this one was really good yeah it was i'm glad you brought up billy because my first notes on the next song one more saturday night are billy wasn't burnt out from the big ending in casey jones he kept some good energy going for one more saturday night so yeah i i like that analysis of being like bonham just he's going absolutely nuts at the end of casey jones and then he doesn't lose energy because they they roll into an excellent one more saturday night yeah and jerry does that stuttering thing that almost sounds like hinting at tiger that i really like number 138 saturday night on heady version and i think the part of the reason why is is billy i he just kept bringing the heat and uh i think he he took the cake in this song Mm. and finally we are at the end of set one it's a long it's not even long it's just there's a lot of songs crammed in 14 songs in set one i think now is a good time to bring up a point that is a point of i think contention in a especially for myself in many dave's picks releases that Okay. is not present here where the discs are perfectly aligned with the sets and so kudos and applause to to dave for fitting the entire 14 song first set on disc one the entire second set on disc two and then disc three is the uh bonus tracks from october 1970 70 mm-hmm. so second set disc two trucking into drums into a 23 minute the other one out of the other one they go into ramble on rose then sugar magnolia you win again and not fade away into going down the road feeling bad and then back into the not fade away reprise no encore for the second set and the second disc what'd you think of the set two opener trucking uh pretty concise under nine minutes but it was uh I I would put it a a little higher than hot. I think that this was electric. The back half of the song was beautiful. They just had this like focused energy to get locked in.
At the beginning, there was some stage banter, and I couldn't tell if Jerry was like sick of the joke already or he was still just loving the joke. Um, but Bob makes the joke that it's a song that went straight to the top of the charts in Turlock, California. And Jerry both finishes the sentence for him and is dying laughing on stage. So either he's like sick of it already and is like, oh, he's trying to do this again, or he <laughs> still has that like good appreciation for, for that joke. Now we're going to start this set off. With a, <laughs> with a song that went straight to the top of the charts in Turlock, Turlock California. California. And that's a fact. That's a fact. Mr. Showbiz. My favorite uh, iteration of that is um, it's one of the August 72 shows. It's either Sacramento or San Jose where Bobby says it went straight to the top of the charts in his living room. <laughs> <laughs> You just picture him like playing that, it back to himself. Like, oh, that, yeah. that is a better version of that joke. Oh my gosh. That's great. This is the number 162 trucking on Hetty version. The beginning of this set two, I think is fair to say is the, the peak of the show with the trucking into drums into the other one, you know, enormous jam suite out of drums. You get that old school, like, bass explosion into the other one where the energy from trucking continues and then you've got keith you know going nuts on the piano and jerry's just lurking around ready to build an indian bead string of notes and when he finally starts construction man he gets a spacey web going that is is excellent Mm -hmm. and that's just the first three minutes yeah yeah it's hot thematic jamming to start and then i i alluded to the one jam between the verses with that sort of psychedelic latin country jazz surf rock feel and then you're right there is a second right before the second verse that's got a darker bluesier feel to it both Mm -hmm. of them a plus so and then at like the 12 minute mark they go into caution like they are playing a caution primal dead jam and then after that like at the 17 minute suite it's like a great precursor to jazz grateful dead jam in there too and that's the one that i thought you were talking about but there's there's many different suites within this other one to pick from that just has a a bunch of good stuff well yeah and my main takeaway was that it's actually one of the more melodically inventive other ones that I've heard, um, certainly for outside of 72 to 74, um, and almost more like a dark star in that sense, because I find they're kind of the, the reverse of each other, where dark star is like a, a flower that's perpetually like opening up, and the theme is sort of like giving you a push to like go off and explore somewhere else, whereas the other one is very like, it's always collapsing in on itself. And because of that, the theme seems to have a stronger gravitational pull on where the jamming goes. Like it all, you always still feel that other one pulse or almost always. Whereas dark star, it's a bit more common to like completely leave like obvious <laughs> dark star territory. Um, so yeah, this one was nice and melodic. Wow. I love that. That's a, fantastic way to put it this is the 100 number 129 other one on heady version and it's also the song that has shot up the most 
from the official release. On the date of its release, it was number 301. Wow. So it moved up 172 spots, I think, if I got my math right. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's from this morning, like on the date that we're recording this. So I'm sure it's going to keep climbing because it's it's up there like this is a this is just some some excellent music. Yeah, I would for sure it should be top 100. I would say probably top 75, maybe top 50. I mean, you've got. There's a chance it could get there. I mean, it's blown up in the last, you know, two, three weeks. I mean, they played it 43 times in 72. Say this would place like middle of the pack amongst the 72 versions, maybe. And then you got some some good ones, but less in 73, 74. Um, for sure, there's some great earlier ones that deserve to be up there. But I think this should be ahead of almost any post-hiatus version. Yeah, give it a little patience, a little time. I think it'll get there because um, it's already flown up the, the charts and, and not just in Turlock, California.
from the other one, they go into Ramble on Rose. And that shocked me when I read the set list for the first time. So I did a little research and the Trekkin drums, the other one combo, that three song set, the dead played 53 times, including 14 times in 1971. So that combo was, I feel like 53 times. It's pretty safe to say that the combo is standard by, by oh, dead yeah. standards. I'm surprised it's that low, <laughs> but this sweet Truckin drums, the other one ramble on Rose has only ever happened twice. It happened this night, November 1971, and it happened once in June of 1972. And that's it. So my it felt good that my surprise was validated. That like, how did the other one into Ramble on Rose? Interesting. It's cool to see something that only happens once or twice, like this sequencing. Do you have any uh any concert instances of seeing a one-off sort Mm. of thing? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. Do you? Yeah. Um, two off the top of my head, they're from the same show, actually. Um, the third Taylor Swift show that I saw, night two of the Reputation tour here in Toronto. Um, she did come back, be here, which is a red bonus track. Um, as oh, the acoustic song that night, and it's the only time she's played that to date. Whoa. Which, uh, okay. I th- I think she's did she say it was one she's never played before before she did it? I can't remember, but um I looked it up after and I had cuz I became a fan like just after that release. I didn't have the deluxe edition, so I heard it for the first time in concert, so that was pretty neat. And then Brian Adams uh, guested with her and they played Summer of 69, which I think is the only time she's played that. So wow. yeah, that, that was a cool night. That is incredible. No, I don't have anything that cool. I'm I'm sure in my concert lexicon. Um man, that's pretty neat. I don't I actually don't know if the Ramble on Rose out of the other one is as cool as as Taylor Swift and Brian Adams playing together. That's that's a pretty big deal. It was pretty neat, yeah. Outer Ramble on Rose, I it's not a goes into, but they they play sugar magnolia following and there's a false start with the vocals, which I just thought was interesting, but the boys rally. Thanks to, thanks to Jerry. I feel like he saves the day with providing like an excellent musical sugar mags out of, um, a, a so, so vocal sugar mag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And you find that a lot where, uh, if there's a slight imperfection, towards the start it's like okay they're gonna really dig in to make up for it yeah anything else on that's all i had anything else on sugar magnolia no not really no after sugar magnolia it's somewhat of a rarity they played the song you win again a cover of a hank williams song and a song that the dead only played 24 times all in 1971 and 1972 Uh, this was the third ever you win again What'd you, what'd you think about this little gem? I love their covers of this. I think it works great for their lineup at this uh, stage of the game. And uh, what was unusual to me about it was its sequencing, having it so late in the second set. It's almost always a first set song. But I I think it works, and it's a cool change of pace. It's like um, 
how the uh the penultimate Europe 72 show May 25th they uh drop is it, I think El Paso is plopped in uh, uh like way towards the end after the jam suite they do it and sitting on top of the world like more first set type songs just dropped in before the finish and it, it works more five so to your point they play only played you and again in set two five times so five out of the 24 times that they played it and um, the so other four times so was it before or after the jam suite Ooh, that'll take me a minute but i can tell you was it before or after the jam suite? it looks like in all five times in set two it was like after or it was like near the end of the set that's very so, interesting because it yeah. seems like post jam suite is almost always occupied by either like pensive ballads or rockers mm-hmm. yeah yeah just something cool to note that yeah. when they played you win again in in set two it was it was the, near the end um it's the number 14 you win again on heady version um i just think it's it's more notable for just how how rare of a song it was and how how cool it was to be in the set list mm-hmm. something not rare at all is coming up next a not fade away into going down the road feeling bad into not fade away to close out the show um i thought that this was a tale of two not fades away i thought the first like the pre going down the road feeling bad was a little lackluster and we'll we'll talk about the the last one after but i was kind of not like impressed until they got to the china cat jam in this not fade away yeah and had i not been like prepping with listening to fall 71 i think i would have been blown away but like you kind of knew this was coming just because i've listened to so much of it but it still was really well done yeah that china cat jam was fantastic yeah listen to if, I mean, I'm sure you have, but just re-listen to Dick's Picks Volume 2 if you want like mm-hmm. a not fade away that has like three or four songs disguised within it. Or maybe those are kind of more in the going down the road feeling bad, but um, it's just like they bust out like And We Bid You Good Night and then China Cat and then Cold Rain and Snow and it's like, oh man, they're doing everything, uh, which is oh, super cool. Trust me, as a Buckeye <laughs> fan and a Dark I'm Star sure. lover, <laughs> as soon as I became aware of that uh, i listened to it. yeah i i should have known that yeah a show in columbus you were all over um, but i but i i'll i'll be honest columbus 72 is one of the lone semi clunkers in fall 72 oh wow okay hey but the night after in cleveland is like top 10 all time for me so still still counts in the state of yeah. ohio it still counts yeah. out of the china cat jam they get into going down the road feeling bad what did you think about this? It, it, it's not, I don't know if it's that by this point in the show, some, my, my note taking focus tends to sag a bit, or I'm just like usually bobbing along and I just know like a good one from a not as good one, but this one, <laughs> it, 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 it hit right. It was a good send off. Yeah. So my thing with this one was it was really kind of uninspiring until the guitar solo at the four minute mark. I feel like I was kind of with you where I was kind of just like nodding along, nodding my head, you know, like, no, just another going down the road, feeling bad. And then Jerry was like, Hey man, wake up. Like we still mm-hmm. got a little bit more of the show to go. And he comes out with some 
energy in the guitar solo. I was like, oh man, okay, I'm back. Um, and I feel like that moment that like Jerry just going nuts in the guitar solo through the end of the second part of Not Fade Away, it's like a complete 180 to what they were bringing at the beginning of the Not Fade Away, where I thought it was a little lackluster. Because uh, they they wind down and go, they dive back into Not Fade Away, and they've got like a powerful electric ending to the song that like, I think it's okay that they didn't encore because they go hard for the last two minutes of that song. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, the UCLA 73 Dave's picks, they, uh, they have to pass along a message from the fire marshal and feels like, Oh, fire marshal's too chicken to come tell you themselves or whatever. Right. But I think that was, uh, the fire department having flashbacks from this ending because <laughs> they burn the place down for sure. Uh, they do indeed. And that's it. That's what they brought on 1971. What were your, what was your like high level thought on this two disc 71 show? I think it's one of the better 71 shows. It was my first time hearing it, but um, I think it compares pretty well to the, uh, the show right before it. Actually, the Albuquerque show on the 17th that is Dave's picks volume 26 with the, uh, the hot air balloons on the cover. Um, that one's also very strong. Uh, I'd probably still say the August 6th show with that all time, great love light and hard to handle is the best individual show of the year. Um, but this one's definitely in the conversation for top five of 71. I think, um, I think the February 18th show is overrated actually. Um, like I get that it has all the debuts and the dark star with the beautiful jam 
is cool and really nice, but I think it's an overrated Dark Star actually as a whole. Um, the last two nights of the April Fillmore East run are both really strong. Um, and the uh, the December shows when Pigpen comes back are pretty good. I've been meaning to listen to the December 15th one in Ann Arbor, but at the moment I'm even less inclined than usual to praise anything coming out of that town. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that this is, I hadn't, hadn't listened, like hadn't heard of this show before. Didn't know anything about this or, or really fall 71 in general until this show was announced. And it's like a great Europe 72 warmup with an other one that I think rivals some, if not many from Europe 72. That would be my, my high level takeaway. Uh, there is a third disc, but come back next week with just me to talk about October 24th, 1970 from Keel auditorium. We're not ignoring the third disc, but we're just talking about you and I are just talking about the 71 show um, for this. I did throw on a, the first few minutes of the good love and from it while I was watching the end of the SEC championship game and uh, sounded very promising. Yeah. It wait till you get to the last. So that, that is like a good love eight minute drum break mm. return to good love wait till you get the return. Ooh. It's, it's nice. Um, yeah. I'm excited to talk about, about that next week well speaking of good loving and 71 though that's an example of how um 71 being great or better for cherry picking than for complete shows um like april 71 those versions of good loving are phenomenal like the princeton one mm. but as a complete show it's like it's pretty good but like that good loving is goat caliber the show's not goat caliber hmm so the last thing we got to do, Zach, before we thank you and let you go, is that we got to, the last time you were with us, you did a song draft from 1973. And that is not usually what we do on this show. What we usually do is we ask you to pick one song that you need to take with you from this show. It doesn't have to be your favorite song of the show, although it can be, but just a song that you feel embodies this show that you would want to include on an imaginary playlist. So when that song comes up, you think of this show. So what song from November 20th, 1971, would you take with you on your imaginary playlist? Hmm. Um, well, it's, it's easy to say the other one because it's great and it's by far the longest. Um, but if I were to take something other than that, that Casey Jones was really good uh, and a, a cool moment with the slight hesitation, but I'll say that's a disqualifier um, to be different. Give me the opening Bertha. Uh, wow. It was, it was very explosive, had that primal dead sort of buzz and it, it made it easy to picture yourself, you know, being there as a, I don't know if what day of the week the show was, but like, you know, Towards the end of the semester, Friday night, we're like, yeah, we're going to go see the dead. And it's got that sparkly, energetic LA sort of feel. Yeah, I'll go with Bertha. Okay. I love that because I totally thought you were going to take the other one. And rightfully so. It's a 
it's a fantastic other one. I am also going to pass on the other one for the show. We've been doing this podcast for just under two years, and I don't have a truckin' on my playlist. And I loved this version of Truckin'. It's really high energy. It's got everything you want. The stage banter at the beginning is great. So give me the truckin' to open set two here from Polly Pavilion. And and that's it. Any any final thoughts before we bid you good night? Yeah, I won't uh, get too far into the the 73 stuff that I'll be unveiling shortly, but um I so I I think the uh the whole Boston runs fantastic and I kind of knee-jerkingly assumed that it was overrated because it's a dick's picks and there's kind of a bias mm. toward shows in the Northeast in the deadhead community. I've noticed, which there is some merit to, I do think speaking to the geography affecting things, I think that the energy, that Northeast sort of edge um, benefited their playing oftentimes. Um, but the middle night, which is not included in the Dick's picks for some reason has a phenomenal, uh, not the full palindrome. There's no morning dew in the middle, but playing with uncle john's in the middle and i think the uncle john's from that december 1st boston show in 73 is like a goat candidate uncle john's band Hmm. it's almost 12 minutes long so i think by far the longest to that point you know 73 um the the intro is like over two minutes coming out of plan and jerry more or less goes like tiger at something but like a nice the the blend of the play and uncle john's feel on the intro is fantastic and then um he brings back sort of a play and feel in the seven four section uh the solo is extended and really nice as well so i would tell everyone to go check out that that's been my uh most repeated song or moment of late and I need to tell everyone to check out Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper, which is Zach's podcast. And you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts, or you can subscribe. Is it just on Apple Music? Or uh, now it now anyone can get it um, for three dollars a minute. Well, I think yeah, it starts at. It gives you an option to like pay whatever you want, but yeah, three dollars American. Yes, for the like premium episodes and the like extra bonus content, including the ability to like request an album review. Yeah, is that right? Re- yeah. To request episode topics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've uh, fallen behind a little the last few months, so I'm just gonna cut the remaining ones, do the 73 ranking, and pause to enjoy Christmas. But I've got some uh, some good things up my sleeve for the new year. I think. Nice. Well, I'm excited to hear that. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will bid you good night. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And I'll bid you good night. Good night. Good night. And I'll bid you good That's it. That's it. You got it.